Hello and welcome to the Dietitian Mindset Podcast. I am your host, Jesse McGinley, a registered dietitian who specializes in sports nutrition. The intention of this podcast is to cultivate more conversation and awareness around the field of nutrition and dietetics to elevate the profession as a whole. Conversations will not only be surrounded around the progression of dietetics, but also the mindset shift that occurs with behavior change, how to evolve as a professional within the sports world, how to collaborate amongst an interdisciplinary team, and approaches, perspectives, and research from others in the field. I hope as listeners, you leave each conversation inspired and open to a new perspective. And with that being said, enjoy today's episode. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Dietitian Mindset Podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined with Rebecca McConville, um, a sports dietitian and eating disorder specialist, an author, researcher, speaker in the field of eating disorder, REDS, and all of that. So, Rebecca, thank you for, for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, gosh, my pleasure. Yeah. Um, so just starting out, um, I know the extents of your background and, and everything that you've done and everything that you are doing, but give a little bit of a, um, a clue into like your experience, your background and all that. Sure, sure. So like many of us, <laughs> I, t- I took the road less traveled. So um actually had to go back and get a second degree to get my degree in dietetics after um, experiencing uh, REDS as an athlete and finding like, hey, what we eat and drink and how we take care of our bodies really does um, impact our performance. So gosh, maybe I could make a career of this. And so went back to school and like many of us, again, I couldn't find a full-time job that was in sports nutrition. So I kind of entered the world of being a hospital RD, which really um, I'm appreciative of because it gave me a good clinical-based knowledge, worked at a diabetes clinic. Um, I had a lot of unlearning to do because I also worked in a weight management program. So um, Mm. I witnessed firsthand a lot of the stigma that came with those clients that I worked with and how diets don't work. And that's actually what ended up leading me into working in an eating disorder clinic, an outpatient um, private practice which I always said I was never going to work at eating disorders and look at me now. (laughs) I love it. I'll I'll never leave. Um, So, you know, that's where sometimes don't slam those doors because you never know when they're going to open back up. And so I'd actually started my PhD, left my PhD because I just felt that yearning in the pit of my stomach. Like this is where my heart is at. I really want to work with patients and clients. And it was funny when they brought me on, they're like, well, we could really see you being um, like the specialist of athletes working with eating disorders. And I kind of laughed. I was like, well, yeah, I'd love that, but I have to be able to pay my bills. And unfortunately, they weren't wrong. There's plenty out there um, just because some of the cultural messages that are still out there today, um, the pressures that they face. And so that's what led me into focusing on athletes with eating disorders. And then through my own Um, journey of looking at research, exploring more. I mean, triad didn't even exist when I was playing in college. And then um, the expansion into reds and just dove in. Um, I found a love for being able to communicate something that can be kind of complicated and having it be um, understandable and relatable for younger athletes, parents, coaches, you name it. Sorry, that's a long-winded ramble. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, not at all. I think it's it's helpful because so many of our paths as dietitians is so 
you know, it, you just wind up in, in spaces that you're just like, mm-hmm. how did I get here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like finding out what, what you love and what you don't love. So it's all, it's all very, it's relative to, to the field. And then also just finding your passion. And like I said, it, you, we, I don't know. I don't know if it's just dietetics or every, every field, we just kind of stumble into it. Yes, we <laughs> so do. <laughs> um, but so kind of going back, that's, that's kind of amazing in, in terms of your path and how it all kind of connects. And, and I always kind of harp on that, like the transferable skills are so important, especially for younger mm-hmm. RDs, but even sports di- dietitians that, you know, I, I talk with a lot of interns or students and they're like, I want to be a sports dietitian. And I'm like, okay, but it is so important, the clinical background and your clinical rotations, like don't just, I mean, we all have feelings about clinical or food service, but they're all so important and relative. Um, so just kind of diving into like REDS and your experience with REDS, a lot of people don't really know even what that is. You kind of even mm-hmm. mentioned like the, the triad is, is relatively new as well. So like, if you don't mind, could you define REDS for, for listeners that maybe aren't, mm-hmm. RDs or maybe aren't aware of that? Yeah. So red stands for relative energy deficiency in sport. I kind of like it, use the term deficit because when I teach it, I teach it in terms of concepts of money, right? So if you have too many withdrawals and you're not putting enough deposits in, then the body has to start using the savings accounts. And so the savings accounts are the energy that's stored in our liver, the energy that's stored in our body fat and our muscle. And so those are also the savings accounts that help our bodies adapt to have better endurance, strength, stamina, our immune system when we're pushing our body. So I always challenge my athletes, do you want to be using those savings accounts for your daily energy needs or do you want to use them for sport? And that's what ends up happening is if you're relying on those, then something's paying the bills and it's going to be at that cost. And then eventually, if the savings accounts start to become depleted, then the the brain and the body just slam the brakes on and like, well, you know, Right now, reproduction is not necessary, so let's shut off menstrual cycle, sex drive, but that starts implicating bone health, that starts implicating heart health, and so this kind of domino cascade occurs, and it's trying to have them slowly, not slowly, sometimes we have to be more aggressive with restoring the energy, and then figuring out what they need nutritionally in case there's been any deficiencies that have resulted as well. Sure. Yeah, I've a lot of the athletes I work with, I mean, it's the body is an amazing thing and the, the overcompensation and, and all of the markers that you can kind of just keep it moving with all of this for the lack of better terms, you know, like, um, and we obviously know as clinicians, like signs and symptoms and the deficiencies that show up in, in lab markers. But like, what would you say to, I, I, I talk with athletes all the time about this of like, okay, we just need to increase calorie intake you know point blank you know take all the all the other conversations aside and and they're like well I'm eating so much and I feel fine so like is there any explanation to that yes yeah that's kind of that (laughs) that's the conundrum that's like trying to tell them that they're probably getting ready to hit a wall right but because since they're feeling okay they might even be performing their best they're Mm -hmm. like I don't know that I want to listen to you And so what ends up happening is when that body starts to rely on the stressor response as a means to get energy, it really actually is performance enhancing, but not in a healthy way. It's almost like using a, sometimes I even say this, it's almost like using a performance enhancing drug because cortisol Mm -hmm. becomes elevated. 
And as a result of that, then we start tapping into like epinephrine, norepinephrine, and epikins, and that increases our heart rate, that increases our blood flow, that also makes us uh, pay less attention to pain receptors. So you'll hear athletes talk about their ability to get in the pain cave. Mm-hmm. Your eyes are dilated, so you can actually concentrate more at an extent of kind of missing some other signals. Maybe like your sleep is getting disturbed at night. So that does cause a performance enhancement in the short term. But the problem is we have no way to predict when somebody's mm-hmm. going to cross over and then all of a sudden they're injured or they've now hit a wall and they're having to work harder, do the same volume of work. So it's very short-lived, but it's hard as dietitians to try to convince them of change during that time. So sometimes it is planting the seed of awareness, seeing if we can get them to say like, hey, you're performing well now. Gosh, let's see what happens when you're well-nourished. Then think of the potential that you may have. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... It, it, the the catecholamines and like the effect of adrenaline, it's, it's a real thing. And it's, it's, I think you nailed it on the head with just, it is a bandaid until it isn't until, mm-hmm. until they all fall off. And then, and then it's, then you hit a wall, no better explanation for that. Um, for that being said, like what other like clinical markers um, can you kind of share? Like that kind of gets elevated from that, you know, what is our body kind of into and what kind of shows up on a on a blood panel or a, a blood blood test sure so i kind of look at it like the pulley system mm-hmm. a lot of times when we're getting in that energy deficit it actually makes the body have to work harder which means we may have more uptick of iron use we may have more use of vitamin d um our thyroid tries to compensate to speed up for the suppressed metabolism in the early stages but then if that athlete doesn't respond with increase in their energy, then it actually starts to conserve by slowing down thyroid function. So sometimes they're misdiagnosed with hypothyroidism when it's really what's called sicky thyroid syndrome. So you go through and you try to get an extensive panel first off so you can have a baseline of what their ion studies look like, um, thyroid. You can also look at things like cortisol or C-reactive protein to look at if there is a heightened um, uh, stress state but many times we can get markers from the body. So heart rate variability, you take it with a grain of salt, but if there's other things that are going on, um, we notice that their morning heart rate is actually trending up. Um, Their resting heart rate during the day is coming down and then their variability is flattening out. That's a nervous system that's trying to protect itself. And so cortisol is remaining elevated while they sleep, which is why the heart rate is actually up when they wake up in the morning. And then to conserve energy, it's dropping it during the day. So that's something I take a look at for for patterns. And usually it'll um, coincide with that RPE. Um, They feel like they're having to work harder to do the same volume or intensity of work before that was easier, which then what do they want to do? Oh, I think I need to add more (laughs) training on and then they make things worse, right? Um, For my adolescent athletes, and when I say adolescent, I actually mean 20 to 24 and below I love those growth charts to look at if they have been um, in the proper growth curve and if they need to get back up on there. Um, I'm really blessed with a lot of the dietitians I work with in university settings that are now actually getting that with their freshmen and sophomores to oh, see if they need uh-huh, if they need to do any catch-up growth. So it's been interesting to kind of look at that data and see, gosh, a lot of them are coming in and they probably still have height to put on. 
they're not necessarily at their adult weight yet. And so we need to catch that up in the, in those college years. Um, so the, I brought up the lab values. The other piece too is um, sometimes depending on where they're at, they may need a baseline EKG. Um, that's not within our scope as dietitians, but just kind of going through what the, the protocols are. And then a DEXA scan, um, if they've uh, had at least a year or more of not having their cycle, that would warrant getting that bone density study. But if they've had six months and they've had some bone stress injuries, then we also would go ahead and look at a DEXA and bone density. Right. Is there anything that happens? This is a, just to add on to this, like clinical markers, is there anything that happens with the lipid profile? That is, Ooh, yes. Of- Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> Screwed a little bit in, in Western medicine. <laughs> yes, yes. I actually had an Instagram post on there that I had no idea was going to get so much popularity, but it was speaking to just that where um, mm-hmm. because the body is having to use those savings accounts, a lot of times when it's breaking that down, we actually have more free lipids circulating. So that's one mechanism by which um, that we would actually see higher cholesterol and lipids. The other piece is since now it's shutting down systems, we have less conversion into sex hormones. And again, those come from those lipids and cholesterol uh, background as well. And then there's also um, just some enzyme activity that gets downregulated too that would contribute to a higher amount of lipids. So what do they do? They go in, they get their blood work checked. And if they don't have a red savvy mm-hmm. provider, they're going to tell them you need to exercise more, cut your fats, increase your fiber. And now we've thrown gas on a fire. <laughs> yep. And then just eating more fruits and vegetables and all of these things. And so it's so misconstrued. It's, yep. it's interesting. And, and I think just the conversation with more physicians and clinicians, especially in the athletic space or even outside of the athletic space, just honestly, yeah, just any physician, like just how do, how do you think, like spreading the awareness of that is the best way to do it. I know that's a long-winded, big question, but any thoughts? Well, so if we look at where our athletes tend to get our edu- their education, no matter how hard we're trying, they still tend to rely on their coaches first, their teammates mm-hmm. second, and then Google. Mm-hmm. So if we can at least start to put more education through our websites, Instagram, um, that's reliable, that helps there. But I think targeting our coaches and athlete providers with accurate information and their physicians, um, it may be, um, again, using some experts, like for example, I was bringing up the DEXA scan earlier, the um, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea consensus statement, say that fast, that's a mouthful, um, <laughs> will actually have recommendations like do not prescribe oral contraceptives for missed periods for, for restoring bone density. So since that's coming provider to provider and it is a consensus statement that's agreed upon by the endocrine society, reproductive society, that kind of gives them a roadmap and say, this is where I've learned my recommendations and information. I just want to share this with you, but it can be hard because we don't want to step on toes. We don't want to go outside our scope of practice, but we also want to advocate for what's best and right for our athletes as well. Right. Oh, that's so that's so tricky, especially with the the oral contraceptive conversation. Um, it's it's. I, I guess I was naive to to be in this space of how often that that still continues, and and just gently having that conversation with you know other providers or other team members, and just kind of educating without being like, what are we doing? <laughs> 
Is well, but it, see it, that, and I think that's a great example where I've actually seen more individuals advocate for themselves. Mm. So if they go in, they're not having a cycle and their physician will say, Hey, I, I think you need to go on oral contraceptive for your bone health. They'll say, well, I heard, or I read no period, no, now what? And so they're actually advocating, like, I don't want to go that route just yet or not at all. And so I think, I think you're starting to see change, but it seems to be coming from the patient first, then the physician. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's right. And I, I think the conversation has shifted. I mean, even when I was kind of coming up in sports, there was like a, it's not a good thing to lose your period. Like that conversation started, you know, and then now it's mm-hmm. really shifted to, to a little elevated more than that. And into the like knowing a little bit more and, and specifically like if we're talking about women's health in general, like there is just more conversation around it, which is great. Right. To see. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's such a need for it. Um, so kind of shifting gears into like how to educate athletic trainers and sports psychologists and strength coaches and coaches and all of those things. I think um, even if we're just talking about reds without an eating disorder or disordered eating, you know, just a knowledge mm-hmm. deficit, but we all see as clinicians how it can trickle or how they're so <laughs> interrelated. Like what is your, your, your take on educating communication to those? I mean, you kind of said it like coaches first and then teammates, like, how do you go about those conversations and what are our big takeaways from there? So that hits a nail on that. That's exactly why I created the, the um, perform, excuse me, <laughs> informed provider certification program, which was really cool because we had a couple of physicians. We had um, some physiotherapists, physical therapists, coaches all in one course. So we got to hear the lens by which they look um, and how they're working with their, their athletes And so I think collaboration, just even when we're updating or talking, we can provide education within that. It's hard Mm -hmm. because I I know that those athletic trainers are already probably working 60, 70, maybe even more hours. Mm -hmm. So they don't have the luxury of sitting down for education. But if we're catching them, you know, in the training room and we're saying like, hey, I think this athlete may be struggling with underfueled hence why they think they're working her up for irritable bowel syndrome. And I want to share what I've seen right there is already an educational opportunity that the next athlete that comes in, that's complaining about stomach upset, they may actually think, Oh, maybe they should be assessed for underfueling. And so we can slowly kind of drop those nuggets and continue to foster. I would love to see more collaboration because I think since reds is a diagnosis of exclusion, The trick is what are we including? So the more people that are invested in their care and around them, the more information we're going to obtain so we can get more proactive earlier on treatment um, and have a a better follow through on care moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I I think. And then what would you say to the the RD, I think, in that space? Like with with college athletics in in particular, some RDs have – you know, seven or eight teams and might in capacity might be a little, little stretched thin. And, and I'm not even going to get into like how to manage caseload, but like in terms of being okay with, with educating and allowing like the athletic trainers to stay in scope, but then also educate, how would you like that two way street of collaboration? What is your kind of advice for RDs with that? Yeah. So going back to the three ways that athletes tend to get their knowledge, let's use that. 
So if they have a particular app that maybe there's communication going on with athletes, you can continue to stay top of mind by just dropping little nuggets of positive nutrition information. Um, like, you know, if you, uh, female soccer team, hey, did you know your period's your superpower? Here's some things that when you, when you have your period are good for you. Continually yeah. kind of infiltrating that. So then when they go to look at social media on Instagram, maybe those are the things they're looking for or create an Instagram account. I know sometimes those apps are probably a um, easier way to touch base because you can also tell if they're reading them or using them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, trying to work with the athlete providers as well, coaches maybe in the off season, educating them um, and then just continuing to talk about the, the power of nutrition I think sometimes we overlook thinking that they have all this great baseline knowledge, but when it mm-hmm. comes down to it, those myths have kind of infiltrated and skewed their knowledge base. And we need to start from ground zero, then build upon there. Yeah. I think that, I think that is completely overlooked too, just the, in terms of assessing knowledge. I think a lot of universities are starting to with, you know, the the physicals or anything like that just having that conversation just to getting an idea of where new coming athletes or incoming athletes are where they're at but it's it's overlooked and even with the male teams I see like it's just like oh we don't need to worry about this and it's like wait 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 (laughs) this is still very much a conversation and and encompasses not just females it encompasses everybody or anybody in sport in terms of deficit in terms of knowledge yeah And even being able to use, I've seen some pretty cool examples where the captains on a team um, went into the locker room and they made rules about what they were not allowed to talk about when it comes to food. So no negative comments. They use like intuitive eating principles. So then that trickled to the freshmen and younger players coming in. Coaches tried to follow those rules as well. So it was a really cool way of empowering the athletes to change that culture from the inside out, which is another fun way to approach it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And in regard to like intuitive eating, like just a little tangent there, I think in terms of college athletics and and all of those things are just not college, but youth and college and pros, like how, what is like, if you were to do a quick little synopsis on it, how to integrate intuitive eating into practices. (laughs) And then, yeah. yeah, any thoughts there? Yeah, so it's tough because I think they they use the word intuitive eating and they don't really know what intuitive eating is. And so even we'll go through like honor your hunger and then we'll talk about ways that hunger gets skewed with uh, stress, intensity of training. Okay, so then what is your bumper? Or sometimes we'll say suggested speed limit. Like when you get on a highway, you don't you try to kind of gauge what you're supposed to be driving by what, following what other people are doing or what the road's like. And so we use that as a roadmap too for how to navigate their nutrition. There's times for more prescriptive nutrition, especially before, during, and after, but then leaning on what's their drive to eat, their hunger, their appetite, um, honoring their health and honoring their health. Maybe they need to focus on recovering nutrition because their body is struggling with injuries. So Mm -hmm. having them redefine those principles um, and then just really trying to keep a positive nutrition practice, not talking about what you're going to cut or avoid, but what you're adding in and why. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that. I think that's another, another space of conversation growth within 
the space of just athletics at any level um, and really understanding that and having people echo your message with that, I think is important because um, it can be so, so skewed. Um, with some of the talks that I've heard you do and, and presentations and, and all of those things, just to speak on this just briefly, the ethics of working with a sports psychologist when dealing with eating disorders or disordered eating, what is, I mean, I kind of just prefaced it, but like, what is your stance there to like share with RDs or even sports psychologists, you know, two-way street there or positions? Mm-hmm. Like what, is, what is the best practice there? You're going to open Pandora's box here. (laughs) No, but I love it because these are the questions that need to be brought up. First of all, I think a lot of dietitians don't understand that sports psychologists are kind of in the same hub as us, where Mm -hmm. we assume that since they become a sports psychologist, they also have an eating disorder knowledge or expertise. And that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the case. There's like Mm -hmm. a different track that they go in, same thing where they're getting supervision and, um, practicums and and experience working with that that clientele. So you want to make sure if you're referring to them that they also have that. And I think it's really important to collaborate because one of the trends that I'm seeing that I've kind of started to be more vocal about, and a lot of times people are like, well, I don't see what the big difference is, is this entanglement of REDS and eating disorders. And Mm. I kind of stand that they need to be separated because the challenge is if we come in and somebody's like, oh, it's quote unquote, just reds. So I need to correct the energy deficit. They shouldn't be having repeated bouts of reds. For some reason, something is skewing their ability to have interceptive awareness, whether it's anxiety, whether it's um, really ingrained diet culture, like orthorexia or um, clinical depression that's kind of leading them to be um, very flat mood and impacted. When we tangle those up, the problem is then when we think REDS, we only think about correcting the calorie deficit, energy deficit, that we miss that collaboration and addressing of the anxiety. We also tend to be more proactive in our medical care with an eating disorder client, an athlete, you need to go see the doctor every three months, you need to have this, you need to have that. Where in reds, you know, once they feel like that energy deficit's corrected, they're kind of out the door, which I also want to correct. I want to change that. I wish people would continue to follow them for at least a year. So that goes back to your question is, I think we probably should, within the second visit, be assessing if that client coming in or athlete with reds needs to have a psychological evaluation because we're practicing unethical if we're continuing to treat the reds and we're not addressing, it's like the band-aid, right? We're, we're not addressing the underlying reason why they continue to have this. Mm-hmm. They're going to keep coming back, which means we're going to see more long-term consequences like bone density, heart mm-hmm. health, et cetera, which should have been addressed in the first place by assessing if it's truly an eating disorder. Right. Right. And that can go both ways, right? So if, if a sports psychologist notice a pattern of reds or under eating and there's no, you know, referral system or no collaboration there, it can be equally as detrimental to the athlete. Or, 100%. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, um, that's just a huge takeaway, I think in, in my, in my book. And I think, um, we really implement that where I'm at, but I think that's an ongoing conversation of how we can be better and how we can create systems, especially at the, I keep bringing up college level one, because I'm in it right now, but two, I think (laughs) the field is, is growing so fast in the collegiate setting. And 
there is a, I mentioned caseload and I, I don't even want to bring it bring that topic up just because it is so vast based on like the ratio from dietitians to athletes. Right. Um, well, I think since you brought it up, we probably should touch on that for a second because that's where athletic departments, if they want to try to, and they probably sh- they should, they should try to keep their athletes within a house because that's who they feel safe and trusted unless there's a certain situation that the athlete wants outside um, support, which I think they should honor that. But, you know, in an outpatient setting, I learned this the hard way when I first started out and I was sitting in the office and one of my um, therapist colleagues like, hey, Becca, how's your caseload going? And I was, I was like already having a rough day. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Everybody told me I would be full within about three or four months. And she's like, well, how many clients are you seeing? I was like, oh, I'm up to about 13 hours. And she goes, oh, shoot, that's full time for me. And I'm like, what? Like, I think full time, I think 40 hours worth of, of clients. And she's like, oh, no, when you do mental health, I mean, you're going to cap out at between 15 to 20 hours worth because the collaboration time, your mm-hmm. mental bandwidth and energy. And so I see these collegiate RDs, God bless them, they're trying to do this work, but they're still expected to see 40 hours worth of athletes and presentations and um, other responsibilities. And that's just not fair to put that toll on them. So they either A, need to increase the amount of employees they have so they can keep these athletes in-house or B, allow them to be able to refer out so they, they can keep it manageable and not burn them out. Right. Whew, sorry. No, no, I, 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 think, I think it's a, it's a huge point. And as, as reds and disordered eating and eating disorders, just, we kind of seen an uptick and I don't know if it's the conversations going or if it's always been there, you know? Um, but just in the space of college athletics, it's, it's just interesting to see how we can implement better systems and how we can, can make it more efficient and ultimately just take care of these athletes at a higher standard. You know, I think, um, I think more staff or are, are more referral systems and all of that. Take care of the athletes. But as a supervisor, I also want to take care of my dietitians. Mm-hmm. That's a hard ask. And that's probably why we're seeing a lot of burnout and people leave college athletics because mm-hmm. they're emotionally and physically exhausted and, they have a big heart. So they, they want to do this. They want to hold that space for the athletes. So it's really on the athletic departments to loosen up their budgets and allow them to have the proper staffing. Yeah. Yeah. And then also just going off of that, the education of what and how we, we can impact as dietitians. I think that's a, a whole nother, could be a whole nother episode of <laughs> the yeah. role dietitians can play since it's, it's becoming more and more needed. Um, So in the collegiate setting, just in terms of like a potential solution, do you see that going? And this is kind of like magic wand, you know, and you kind of touched on it like magic wand. Do you see a department having an eating disorder specialist and an eating disorder mental like health specialist and like a whole wing? Like what what does that look like for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm seeing a trend I think is great where (laughs) they're identifying like, hey, when we send these athletes out to outpatient providers that gets kind of costly. So why don't we keep them in house, start mm-hmm. educating the staff that we have. So I have several dietitians that are working on their CEDRD to become an eating disorder mm-hmm. specialist, eventually will become supervisors. So then they can supervise um, the, the, the clinicians that work underneath them. And when I say supervision, I think a lot of times people get confused between like a work supervisor 
versus when we say supervision, it's you're helping navigate caseload, um, um, mm. what's coming up for that clinician themselves when they're working with those athletes and helping provide um, support through, through that. So I want to make sure I provide some clarity there. And then as a result, the dietitians a lot of times end up being the most eating disorder savvy person on the team because they're doing the education, they're doing the supervision, they're doing the work. And so you're starting to see more roles um, on treatment team as leaders. They become like the eating disorder treatment team leader. Um, we've got a couple schools now that have actually created specialty task teams. So oh, then if there's an athlete of high risk, they go to that team as well. So it it is so much fun to see the change that's happening mm -hmm. within the collegiate sector because yeah. the dietitians are just taking the bull by the horns and going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much space to it. So there, there's so much space to innovate and, and really integrate all of these practices into it. You know, if resources and money and, and all of that. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. I think, um, and just like last little question, I kind of always end with this, given the name of this podcast and everything, like, how would you help if you're talking to a dietitian kind of stuck in that burnout or stuck into that, that system that, you know, that we, we just kind of hit on or, or, how, how would you, how would you help them shift their mindset around it? Yeah. Take a look at control the controllables. So are there <laughs> things that they can do on a daily, weekly basis to take care of themselves? Cause I know the world of athletics, there's a lot of people that are like the grind, the hustle mm -hmm. and everybody ends up burnout or they're having health issues. So they have to figure out how they can navigate that and continue to have their, their mental and physical bandwidth. So that may be capping out a certain amount of clients they see with, with REDS or eating disorders and maybe certain things that they need to do to take care of themselves, like going and having coffee with a friend, making sure they get enough sleep, make sure they're doing movement might be therapy for themselves. Because again, we're taking on the stress of those athletes that we work with as well. So it has to be a continual check-in and we have to learn to establish the B word and that's boundaries. <laughs> Yep. So important. Uh-huh. Important. I think, I think, yeah, I think that's an amazing, amazing point. It's kind of like the oxygen mask, you know, from the airplane. You can't yep. help others unless you help yourself, you know? Yep. Um, and, and, and outside of eating disorders too, I think just in this practice, I think things can, can get heavy on the dietitian side and we not realize it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, but amazing. Um, Becca, thank you again for, for coming oh, on this conversation, really insightful for, for everyone. Um, is there any resources or anything? Um, like where can people find you? Where can people connect? Sure. So my website is www.beccamcomble.com. I'd love to have you in my, my next group of Reds Informed Provider course will be in June. So okay. you're welcome to check that out or email me if you want more information. Awesome. Awesome. I'll, I'll put all of that in the show notes for, for everyone listening and, and definitely Thank you. appreciate myself it. too. Yeah. Um, love it. But all right. Well, I appreciate you again. And then um, listeners, thank you for, for your time. I hope you picked something up from this amazing conversation and, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Thanks Becca. for having me on. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Bye.